Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us listening today and happy to have these guys joining me today. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. Philip. Morning, Brad. Bob. Good morning. Dustin. Morning, Brad. And we've got a special guest, Vaughn Holder from All He's the All Tech Ruminant Research Director globally. Good morning, Vaughn. Morning. Happy to have you. And we're going to have some great discussions. We're going to talk about a couple things as we go through the day. We're going to talk about grazing plans. And we're going to talk about supplementing cows. What are some of the values there? And then Dustin's going to tell us a little bit about some of the tips and tricks for recruiting employees, because that's something that's challenging for everybody. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Any questions, any thoughts you have as, as you'd like to visit with us, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu, or you can reach out and contact us on Twitter at the underscore BCI. Before we get into those topics, I, I wanted to ask you guys, it is the time of year to be planting gardens. And so people are putting stuff out as you think about gardening season. Here's what I want to ask you guys. What is your least favorite thing that comes out of the garden? You grow it, but you don't like to eat it. Oh, that's, that's actually carrots is for me. I, it's, we grow it because everybody grows carrots, but it's like, yeah, I can buy these at the store and they're exactly the same. Cucumbers. I won't even touch cucumber, but everybody in the family likes them, so I plant them. So you plant cucumbers, but don't eat them. Oh, I won't touch them. <laughs> you won't even touch them. No. Yeah. I like cucumbers because they kind of, as they creep out of the garden, we have a rule, right? As the mower goes by, if you're out of the garden, that's on you. That's not on the mower. <laughs> <laughs> so, Philip, you got a least favorite? You know, I was trying to think. I don't, I don't know that I do. I mean... Well, we tried, we lived in Oklahoma for a while and we grew okra when we lived in Oklahoma. Yeah, that was not. Oh, not that, your favorite? No. Mm -mm. Fried okra is great. It's good and slimy on the middle. Yeah, I can't do the slimy. Yeah. I, we, I like zucchini and last year was the first year we planted it. My kids wouldn't touch it. So, yeah. and it's very productive. Yeah. <laughs> you could, yeah. You could we feed were, the world. We were zucchini. drowning in yeah. two zucchini plants. So yeah, I, I like it. Kids didn't probably won't plant that one again. Vaughn, do you have a least favorite garden vegetable? <laughs> you know, I'm in the okra camp. I've been in Kentucky for 17 <laughs> years, but, uh, still okra has not grown on me at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not an acquired taste. I think it's a yes or no. It's a, you can't build a tolerance to it. So, so we appreciate we appreciate you joining us today. Tell tell us a little bit about you and your background, Vaughn. Sure. So, as you can tell, I'm not from Kentucky originally. Uh, I'm from South Africa, uh, born and raised in South Africa, and did my undergraduate and master. Alltech brought me across for an internship in 2005, and I basically never left. So, uh, put me through grad school here at UK, a few classes at Kansas State with uh, Dr. Nagaraja there, and. Uh, yeah, I've been with Alltech since 2012 after my PhD and working in the research department primarily focused on beef and dairy production. Absolutely. And I didn't realize you'd had a class with Dr. Nagaraja. If you're doing rumens and want to learn about that, he is really one of the experts and it's great to have him here working with us. So Absolutely, yeah. Appreciate you making time to join us this morning and and one of the things and we're so we're going to hit a couple of nutrition topics because we've got Vaughn on, we've got Philip here, but I want to get you guys insight as well. The U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef has been a great organization and has really put out some good materials. There's going to be more coming out, but a lot of those are, are based on 
how, if I want to be sustainable as an operation, what are some of the things I could assess? And one of the things that has been a tool and a questions that's been asked is, do you have a grazing plan? So I, I want to ask you guys, okay, if I'm asking myself that question, what does that mean? How would I, how would I know if I have a grazing plan? I mean, maybe I don't have it written down. Is it still a grazing plan? So what is a grazing plan, Philip? Well, it, that's a very broad term because a grazing plan could be anything from, you know, I move cows to a different pasture once a year to I rotate cows daily for, from one pasture to the next. I do things like fence them out of creeks and, and worry about watersheds and, and things like that. To, you know, there's lots of different aspects to that, that term grazing plan. Well, one of the things that I, it, I, I like my job because I get to work with a lot of different beef producers and veterinarians, and what you'll see is different people have different strengths, and they kind of lean into their strengths, but there's a lot of beef producers who honestly would describe themselves as grass farmers or, or grass or grazers first, and beef cattle producers uh, second. I'm not quite in that camp, but I appreciate that perspective, and I think there's a lot to learn. So if you talk to that type of a person, a lot of times they have a grazing plan because they really see themselves as utilizing the grass on the land that they own really, really well. And so as a, I'm an appreciator of grazers and I want to learn from them uh, because I do recognize they have, a, I mean, they, they are a grazing plan. They're a walking grazing plan. And, I, and so I had a question too, because I'm, this is way out of me. And as Philip joked recently, I'm a veterinarian, not a nutritionist. So, um, so how much, how much contingency would people build it? So you talked about rotation, so moving. So it, you described kind of a, a movement plan. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I know we've talked about drought a lot here recently. So are, would a grazing plan, a, a good grazing plan also build in contingencies for, okay, if, you know, if this pasture is overgrazed or it's, it's droughty and so I don't have as much resources there, then what's plan B? Is that also part of a good grazing plan? Yeah, so I, I think those are important points, Brian. I, from my perspective, it's a it's a management strategy essentially to, to to achieve two goals, and one is to maximize the production of forage or feed for the animals, and one to manage the utilization. You need both, right? Trying to turn grass into baby cows, you need to maximize both the amount of grass that's there as well as how well you utilize it, because you can go you can go into both extremes of direction and end up. Uh, not achieving the maximum uh, outcome that you might want to get. Yeah, and Brian, you're right. I, I jumped straight to moving cattle around, but the the most impactful or most important part of a grazing plan is how many animals you have on the land together. The stocking rate is the most important part. And so making sure that you get that right so that you're not overgrazing when, when you've got less productive years, and, and things like that are, is very important to that grazing management plan. But the stocking rate is easy to adjust if I'm buying grazing calves. It's hard to adjust if I have cows, right? Because I don't want to sell cows, and I don't, but I also don't want to keep a minimal number of cows that doesn't utilize it efficiently year after year. So I want to keep somewhere in the middle. I want to keep the absolute right number. Well, year to year, how much does productivity vary on grass? A lot. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I can't give you a number for a lot, <laughs> but the you're right. I mean, and and so one of the things that we we talk about from that perspective 
is being someone on the conservative side because it's a lot bigger problem to run out of grass in a less productive year than it is to have some extra that's stockpiled in a more productive year. And so that we, we tend to, to recommend that that stocking rate is a little bit more on the conservative side. Maybe. I mean, maybe it's a bigger, I mean, it is a bigger problem because I've got to sell cows, but if I spend eight years weaning one less calf than I could have, that's a big problem, but I didn't have to write anybody a check for that. Well, but look at it this way, though. If I've got more productive years or more productive grass, I'm going to just extend that grazing season. So I'm going to, I'm going to stockpile some of that, that stuff, that forage, and then I can, I can, you know, that, that, uh, mid-gestation dry cow she can get by with some really poor quality forage and so i can get her through the fall and maybe into the early winter without having to feed any hay and and very little supplement if i've got that extra grass so i make that money by reducing my winter feed bill not necessarily by having an extra calf which is what you found on your study when you looked at high and low profit right dustin yeah that uh i mean feed expense is going to be one of your largest well generally it is the largest expense and so taking that into account is, is going to be very important. Yeah. But the high, the high profit had more grazing, day, more pasture expense, which we think was more grazing days, right? So, yeah, what we generally find was that the feed expenses were less for those high profit operations, but the pasture's expense was higher. So I'm assuming that the, maybe they're running the cows either on pasture longer. Uh, so there's some kind of trade-off going on there. So one of, one of the things I would encourage, and I think this is a good discussion, but I'd encourage if you're interested in this topic, look at the U.S. Roundtable. There are some guides there. There's some discussion relative to grazing plans. I think Brian's point was great. You, you end up talking a lot about it doesn't have to be a written prescribed. We're certainly moving them on May 19th, but it should be something where it has some contingencies and flexibilities. Philip, you brought up the, those mid-gestation cows well, I can get them through the winter and I don't need a lot of forage supplementation, but that's not what we're dealing with today. Today, in most operations, spring calving operations, we have cows that are lactating. They're using a lot of energy. And sometimes we're talking about supplementing those cows. And, and often it's discussed supplementation versus substitution. So Vaughn, I, I want to ask you, as we think about providing nutrition to cows, what's the difference between supplementation and substitution? Yeah, so this is a really important part of this, right? Because we're using these supplementation strategies to manage that load. We've chosen our stocking rate, particularly with cows, and you, you're going to use supplementation to, to fill in the gaps, right? If you do end up with gaps. But the, the issue that we often run into with supplementation, we usually are talking about supplementing grain. If we're talking about supplementing energy, uh, we're supplementing grain in a primarily forage-based diet, which causes the digestibility and then successively the intake of that forage to go down. And obviously, this is something we want to try and avoid because you're paying a lot more money for that grain energy than you are for that forage energy, and you don't want the one to replace the other. So that's the sort of uh, substitution versus supplementation cascade that you have to consider when you're putting that in place. So, and then as that changes potentially the fiber digestibility in the forage how do you manage that philip well so one of the ways that we manage that is by limiting the amount of grain or starch that we give to those animals and trying to use 
a different type of feedstuff that is a what we call a highly digestible fiber type of feedstuff. So there are some recommendations out there that from a, a starch perspective, we don't want to get to supplement more than about 0.35% of body weight or, or somewhere in there of starch, which when, but then we can supplement larger amounts of highly digestible fiber without negatively affecting the forage digestion. Yeah, so so give, give me some examples of highly digestible fiber so I know exactly what you're talking about. So some of those type of feedstuffs are soybean hulls, uh, distillers, grains, corn gluten feed, wheat mids, some of the rice milling byproducts that where they're taking the hull off the rice, those types of things. They're, they, they don't have the high lignin content that forages do, and so they're a fiber, but they're much more digestible than forage or plant just just so you know i just did some quick math and at 0.35 i'm not sure i did the math right because at 0.35 it's telling me a 1200 pound cow i could not feed her more than 420 pounds a day i think you did the math wrong I think you <laughs> move your decimal point. <laughs> yeah. but but probably you can't feed her more than well, 420 I pounds a day. <laughs> agree with that one yeah yeah i might have been off by two places right so yeah. 4.2 pounds for 1200 pounds well, another thing that that i kind of thought of was as we talk about a grazing plan one of the reasons in my opinion that the u.s roundtable didn't prescribe a ra- grazing plan is because there's such differences in base forages between say florida the midwest the great plains the, the desert west and so it'd be kind of uh, not not useful to prescribe a a grazing plan and some of that has to do with the you know, what's the limiting nutrient? And around Kansas, much of the Flint Hills anyway, the, the, yeah, the Flint Hills region, when our forage is dormant, it is really low in protein. So then the first thing we do is supplement protein to try to get up digestibility up. But that is not true with other forages that are when they're dormant and you're trying to supplement them. And so it's really important to know what your limiting nutrient is on the forages that you're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think what... We talked about maybe limiting. So you've got figure out your limiting nutrient. And then you said, okay, one of the ways I can control and avoid substitution is limiting the amount of feed I provide, right? That highly digestible feed. So how do, what are some of the other ways, Vaughn, that I could try to control avoiding that substitution effect or changing my fiber digestibility? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the nitrogen one is very important because. Uh, if you're short on nitrogen, any other strategy that you try and take is not going to be very effective. Obviously, the nitrogen being really critical to to support the fiber digestion process. But uh, there there are other conditions where you will have uh, materials that are out in the field. Particularly, it's going to happen with those really low nitrogen forages, those stockpiled forages that are of really low quality. You're often going to have a problem with with the digestion rate of those forages, right? The, the rumen's filling up with the forage, they're digesting really slowly, and so you're short, you're short changing the intake of the cow. She can't keep up. And you can use things in that case like enzymes to try and assist in the breakdown of that, that forage a lot more quickly, increase the intake of that animal, and then get the energy throughput that animal that you, that you need on there. But I think those are tools that you need to use in the right situation once the basics of nutrition have been taken care of. Vaughn, what are some of those situations? Are you looking at those enzymes in like dry hay situations, uh, silage situations? Yeah, so usually you're looking at a situation that that there's a limitation on the rumen that we can't overcome with, with regular nutrition. Either we're talking about the supplementation of concentrate, as we mentioned. When we supplement concentrate, we inhibit the inherent ability of the rumen to digest fiber. 
those situations, you can use an exogenous enzyme to then bring your fiber digestion back. Uh, the other situation, obviously, having really low quality forage that the rumen is struggling to digest, adding some more fibrolytic capacity to the rumen uh, to alleviate that that short shortcoming in the rumen. The other situation, which we probably won't talk about as much with grazing animals, but uh, the supplementation of fat uh, in these diets. If you're supplementing with fat to get energy into the system, that will also inhibit fiber digestion of those of the rumen, and using exogenous enzymes can help correct that as well. Yeah, and certainly there are times at this time of year as you get close to grazing season, but not quite close enough. I can't turn the cows out and I may have had to dip further into the hay pile. Some of that some of that hay, we like to save the best quality hay to the end, but it may not always work out, right? So it, that may is that one of the things that we're talking about? Yeah, that could be a situation where it could work. And you know, one of the other question one of the question I had for Vaughn was, you know, in in silages, a lot of times we'll add an inoculant and we'll add some other things during the process of putting it up, but that doesn't work very well with dry hay, which is a lot of our beef producers use. So yeah. how are you delivering these enzymes to, to get them, make them effective and, and logistically feasible in, in these situations? Yeah, so with enzymes, logistics is really important. Uh, unfortunately, enzymes are quite specific in the conditions under which they function, right? And that's why I'm talking about we perturb the rumen and you, you affect its, its ability. This is no different with exogenous enzymes. Historically, the application of enzymes directly to forages in the field or in a stockpile has not been very successful. And that's because you really do struggle to control the conditions under which that occurs, you know, either whether it's temperature or humidity or, or that type of thing. So the application in feed is usually the best way to do that because the rumen is a fairly stable environment and you have the site of action uh, of that enzyme being in the rumen of the animal, which at least from a temperature and moisture standpoint is relatively consistent. So you'd basically talk about feeding an enzyme yes. versus applying it to the forage and let it be in the, you know, in, in the forage as it's curing or developing. So. Yes. yes, correct. So you would go in through a mineral or a tub or a, a liquid or whatever it might be to to get it into the diet. And we've mentioned a couple of times exogenous enzymes. Maybe just define those two terms for me just to be sure that we're all on the same page. Yeah, so that's essentially saying this is not an enzyme that the animal or its microbial systems are making, right? We're supplementing that from, from the outside into the ration to, to supplement the enzymatic ability of the, the rumen environment. Absolutely. And I, and I think this ties in this whole topic of okay, I may have to provide some supplementation, but I want to be sure that it's supplementation, not substitution. Here's some of the tricks that I can go through, but it ties into my grazing plan as well. The, and I want to shift gears a little bit because one of the last topics that we wanted to talk about, and Dustin, you, you've seen this firsthand coming up, is we've got a lot of people in ag that are trying to recruit, find new people. And I said at the top, you're going to, you're going to give us the solution for this. If we have time, if we run out of time, you don't have to give us the full solution. Okay. We're probably going to run out of time. So there won't <laughs> be a full solution. Uh, but in the night, last 19 minutes, since we've been on air, uh, I received an email from a student said she's not gonna be able to make it to class day because of staffing issues. She has to go to work. I did just get a text about two minutes ago from somebody who's looking for a commodity commodity hedging analyst. So we're talking, you know, 20 minutes on second day of the week, and here we go. Uh, this is an issue, and we're seeing that 
I'm seeing that pretty frequently. I'm getting probably three to four inquiries a, a week about students looking for, for employment. And I don't think it's just here in, in ag space. I think it's probably, I mean, obviously, if you read the Wall Street Journal or any, any news outlet, uh, you know, low unemployment rate and, and, and whatnot. So I don't know that I have solutions, but I can tell you it's a problem. Just as the director of the graduate studies, I try to, part of my job is to recruit students for next fall. Last year, lots and lots of people, applicants. This year, there's no applicants. And what few applicants, it's my, you know, it's us, it's K-State, it's Oklahoma State. It's everybody's Purdue. chasing the same Everybody's people. chasing those yeah. few individuals. And so what are we seeing, right? They're rising salaries. salaries. Yep, yeah. their stipends are going up. Well, we, we had a, a veterinary student on the podcast just <laughs> last week or two weeks ago, and we certainly see it here at the vet school that, that there are a lot of jobs for each graduate. So the graduates are in a good position as far as starting salary and, and really being able to choose. But I'm also in the business of trying to hire some people in in different, you know, graduate student positions, staff positions, things like that. And they're hard to find right now. Vaughn, do you have a perspective from your role? Yeah, I think we're suffering with the same thing. And I think it's generally across the industry, to be honest, we we are suffering a little bit with an, with an image problem, as we know from the mainstream media that we see. You know, agriculture has become this, this fun to demonize area, particularly the animal side of agriculture. And, uh, we need to reframe this as uh, one of the most noble careers that you could do. You're feeding the world. And I, I think there's an opportunity for a rebranding there that could help our problem. Because I think because of what we see in the media, our problem is exacerbated relative to the rest of the the industry who also has labor problems. So, you know, it kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with supplementing cows. And, you know, you, you, as a veterinarian, I think more conscious of the recommendations you make and the logistical implementation of those recommendations. And I mean, I, I, it seems new, but I, you know, I'm thinking back for my first few years of practice 20 years ago and it, there were similar issues, you know, we were, I was practicing in the California dairy industry and you'd see employees come and go because they'd work seasonally at the dairy, but then they could make more harvesting fruit crops or whatever. And, and it, it was always, it was kind of an ongoing challenge and I, I don't have the ultimate solution. I'll, I think one perspective from the dairy industry, and I, I don't know how much it applies to beef and specifically cow calf, but you know, there's been a major move to automation in the dairy industry simply because there weren't people that wanted to work 24 hours a day. I mean, it's it's a hard job. Don't get me wrong. But they've used automation to kind of help mitigate some of those issues. Which is great. But it's it's a much harder to automate some of the oh, things in yeah. the beef industry. Yeah. So but I but I think the. One of the things we're seeing is you have different levels of employees and some of it, Dustin, you mentioned salaries are going up and, and I think you're going to have to be competitive on the salary. But then if you're competitive on the salary, it comes down to other stuff, right? And depending on what your level of employee is, it may be the culture in that operation. We did a survey of veterinarians and, and looked, and this was a few years ago, and looked at what they, what made them feel more or less satisfied with their job. And one of the things that made them they were more likely to feel satisfied if they got feedback from their boss, right? Nobody wants to work on an island and not know if you're doing a good job or not. So I, I think the culture of those organizations may be 
more important now than ever, right? Because you'll put up with a lot of stuff if you really need a job. You'll put up with very little if you have plenty of jobs available, I think. So we, we have certainly enjoyed having you on, Vaughn, and appreciate your insight. We can follow up as with you if we have any questions. Certainly, if you have a question for Vaughn, you could send it to us, and we can get in touch with him. He works with Alltech. He's the Alltech Ruminant Research Director, and we appreciate Alltech sponsoring it and sponsoring to have him on this podcast because it's good to get that information, and it's good to talk about what are some of the new things like potentially using those enzymes, and we talked about some places that they may make sense, as well as discussing the, the grazing plan. As always, we've appreciated you joining us and spending a little bit of your time with us, and if you have questions, thoughts that you'd like us to discuss on an upcoming podcast, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.